0: Greetings, I'm Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus at the Movies. A quick shout-out to Patreon supporters Kelly Smith and Peter Mangle. For this episode, my guest is Dr. David Baggett. Dr. Baggett is a professor of philosophy in the Rowling School of Divinity at Liberty University. Author and editor of over a dozen books, he's the executive editor of MoralApologetics.com. He works in the areas of philosophy and popular culture, philosophical theology, philosophy of religion, ethics, and moral apologetics. His most recent book, co written with his wife, Mary Beth Baggett, is entitled The Morals of the Story Good News About a Good God. <clears throat> I'd also like to mention his involvement in the books Hitchcock and Philosophy, Harry Potter and Philosophy, and Philosophy and Joss Whedon, which is part of why I thought he'd be a great guest in this podcast. Welcome and thank you for joining me, Dr. Baggett. Thanks
1: Cody, great to be here.
0: (laughs) Um, And and, uh, you had picked the film uh, Shadowlands, made in 1993, directed by Richard Attenborough, uh, who uh, also directed Chaplin and Gandhi, and and, uh, maybe more famously played John Hammond in Jurassic Park. (laughs) And uh, stars Anthony Hopkins as C.S. Lewis, so it is uh, sort of a biopic about the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. Uh, uh, David is played by Deborah Winger. I'll give sort of a a very brief plot outline for those who may be sort of unfamiliar with it. It follows the friendship of the British writer and professor C.S. Lewis with the American poet Joy Davidman. Davidman had been an atheist communist before reading Lewis and traveled to the UK to meet him. On a return trip, now as a divorcee, she asks him to marry her to keep her in the country. Uh, after her cancer diagnosis, he realizes that he really does love her, and he struggles with the emotional pain of his inevitable loss and how that shapes his feelings about God. So, um, w- when I contacted you, I- I'd mentioned you know your involvement in some of these these books related to like Harry Potter and-, and Hitchcock, and and I said, yeah, you know you know you've kind of written and you know thought about the relationship of films and philosophy and that kind of thing, um, and sort of said you know what was there a movie you might like to, to talk about in the podcast? And this is the one that you picked. So um, what, what was it that, about this film that really sort of stood out for you as, as being, you know, very relevant to how you, you know, think through
1: some some philosophical and theological issues? Yeah. Well, this is a, this is a great movie. I, I've enjoyed it uh, through the years a number of times. It's it's beautiful. The, the music is beautiful. The setting is beautiful. Of course, it's about C.S. Lewis. And I'm a big fan of, of Lewis. And it's also pretty philosophical. It broaches questions concerning evil and suffering in the world, and not just sort of on a theoretical level, but a very personal level. And that's very true to life, because Lewis had written The Problem of Pain. But when he, uh, when he lost his, his wife after just a few years of marriage, uh, he struggled with suffering in a personal way. And so it was very much that kind of pastoral or existential Struggle with evil, not just not just a theoretical or philosophical question. So the movie uh, really uh, pulls at strings. It it gets you thinking. It touches you. It moves you. Uh, it's set in an academic setting, which which I also like, and at Oxford of all places, uh, which I, I love the most. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, the the movie has just so many features that uh, that resonate with me, and I love thinking about it. Well, and it's interesting in the film through
0: uh, particularly these, these uh, speeches or, or sermons that he's delivering, y- you sort of get a feel for how he w- is working through the, these issues, his transformations on the issue of the problem of pain. And so, you know, early on in the film, you have him saying things like, you know, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf, deaf world. And uh, God doesn't particularly want us to be happy. He wants us to love and to be loved. He wants us to grow up. And he thinks that suffering helps us do that. Uh, he says that, you know, God is like a sculptor, the blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much or what makes us perfect. Um, and then after the cancer diagnosis, he's, you know, now says, you know, if you love someone, you don't want them to suffer. Why doesn't God feel that way? Um, you know, and then, you know, I'm afraid that suffering is just suffering after all, no purpose. You know, at that point, he's, you know, struggling a little bit with this idea of, you know, maybe, maybe they're you know, now that you're, now that he's sort of feeling this pain in a very intense way, Smoker theoretical, and he and he actually starts to like almost try on atheism here and there, um, which which he does also in um, the two books, which are which are pretty fascinating to read because you do get the problem of pain, this very theoretical view, and then his journal that he writes, a grief observed um, after after his wife dies, and he's sort of like working through all these different feelings and trying on all these ideas. Okay, well maybe there isn't a god. He's like, well that's obviously nonsense. Uh, maybe, maybe God just, you know, isn't very nice, <laughs> you know? And so he's kind of working yeah. through all these ideas and he kind of, they, they sort of show him doing that in the movie, you know, the, 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 the we're rats in a cosmic God's cosmic laboratory. Um, and, you know, in the book, I think he says something like, you know, the, the experiment will turn out for our benefit in the end, but but ultimately this would make God a vivisectionist. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so it's it's very interesting to to sort of watch that, that transformation and, um, it, you know, I have kind of my own you know thoughts on different ways that you, you could respond to the problem of evil and, and things that have maybe helped me think through that. But it kind of made me wonder if maybe, you know, C.S. Lewis had, m- maybe it was somewhat inappropriate for him to speculate so much uh, about why God would allow suffering because, you know, once you're sort of in that moment, all that speculation starts to feel very kind of paltry. You know, it's a, it's a bit, you know, like like you know, you know, Job and his comforters, you know, where, where they're all giving all these reasons why Job must have yeah. gone through all the suffering, and then there really isn't a, you know, a very, uh, there's really an answer that's that, that's that's there that's totally satisfying apart from just his, um, you know, suddenly experiencing God in a personal way again is sort of what pulls Job through it, and. You know, you know, as a philosopher, I mean, do you do you tend to think that some of these speculations are 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 helpful or appropriate, or, or you know, does does maybe C.S. Lewis's experience with pain sort of give the lie to, um, you know, that that idea?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Well, on, uh, on the one hand, I, I think it's very worthwhile for us to think hard about the question and. Attempt to come up with some potential reasons why God might allow various sufferings and such and that's that's a worthwhile thing to do it Psychologically, it's practically impossible. I would guess for us not to try mm-hmm. It's just kind of who we are as human beings, right? Uh, on the other hand there, there really are these uh, epistemic limitations that we're saddled with and it's awfully difficult for us to come up with the definitive answers that we might want to find and We have to come to terms with that that not all of our questions our answer to our satisfaction in this world. We see through a glass darkly and that sort of thing. And uh, that's difficult to come to terms with, especially if you're philosophically minded, I think. And C.S. Lewis certainly was. And We have to come to terms with the fact that uh, the sort the sort of deep, penetrating, definitive answers that we uh, yearn for are probably not altogether available in this life. I mean, God doesn't necessarily promise to answer uh, every last question uh, that we have, at least right now. We we continue to see through a glass darkly and the like. He promises, of course, to be with us uh, through the various struggles and unanswered questions, uh, but sometimes we just have to come to terms with the, the, the fact that we uh, we don't understand things fully. So what you have here in Lewis is a very philosophical thinker uh, you know, who was actually trained in philosophy and whose cast of mind was in that direction. He wanted to ask those questions, he wanted to struggle, he wanted to uh, venture some potential answers. But he also had to come to terms in his personal experience of his life with the inadequacy of some of those answers. As, as insightful as they were, uh, there's still going to be leftover pain and suffering that's, that's awfully hard to deal with, some unanswered questions, and that's very much what this this movie is about. So, in answer to your question, yeah, I'm, I'm a little torn. I, I think we we need to try to think hard about these questions, uh, but I think we have to do it with a certain measure of humility and recognizing our limitations, and uh, so that we don't become altogether disenchanted if we don't get the answers that we we, we would really like.
0: Yeah, you know, well, what's kind of interesting. Is um, the the film doesn't necessarily give a, a theological um, kind of. A definitive answer for Lewis that he lands on. Um, I, I was reading through again a grief observed last night, and um, you know, I guess I found that he doesn't necessarily come with with a, with a really strong one in the book either. It just sort of something that after he works through that that moment, he finds that he's he's able to experience God again. I mean, there are certain things he kind of you know does work through as far as like you know, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense for. You know, if God is just this evil thing that wants to trap us, and his his qualities are really you know just terrible, it would seem strange that you know he would create all these wonderful things that are that are, are what is like almost the bait, you know, and he sort of mm-hmm. lands on this idea that maybe the good things are really primary, and the evil things are sort of aberrations, um, and so that you know even if we can't necessarily totally understand what God is doing, there's a certain sense in which we just trust. There is goodness there that that sort of makes sense to land on. In, in the movie, um, the way that he sort of comes out as well, I don't really get all this, but I guess I'm glad that I'm you know I-, I need to be able to sort of accept life openly. Whereas his experience when his mother died when he was young was to sort of almost hide from it a little bit. You know, he sort of comes to this conclusion that it's it's good to uh, open yourself up to good experiences, even though they're not ultimately. Everlasting or whatever that, that you know, there's always going to be some pain involved D- Did you feel like there, there were any particular answers that, that Lewis landed on in the film or any of his writing that, that, that you felt were at all Satisfactory for, for this question or, or at least helping mm-hmm. sort of
1: move our way to an answer. Sure Sure. Well again I think that if we bear in mind the distinction between the sort of theoretical challenge and then the the personal emotional struggle that that's helpful mm-hmm. right I don't think that Lewis ultimately found there to be any intractable theoretical difficulties with believing in the existence of a good God, even in the face of the terrible suffering in this world. It wasn't the theoretical question that he found himself really struggling with in this this movie, in, in real life, in, in uh, A Grief Observed. It was that personal, existential, emotional struggle. And I think that this is important for us all to remember because we might have... Uh, very decent answers as to why God might allow this or that suffering in this world, but obviously, if you come across someone who's just lost a child, you don't just start hitting them with the philosophy, right? You do You you just don't say, "Well, here you know, here is a possibility for why God might have allowed your child." to build it, Like you said earlier, and, and heartless. Uh, what you do in those moments is you uh, you embrace them and, and you just spend time with them and you allow them. Them to grieve, and you grieve alongside with them, and things like this. This, by the way, is uh, one of the insights from from the movie. Uh, powerful scenes near near the end, you know, where Douglas, the son. Is sitting there in the at the wardrobe and and it's su- such an iconic scene of course because he had already been up to made his way to the back of the wardrobe hoping for all he was worth to see uh you know narnia open up <laughs> and 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 it was a disappointment of course so there he was sitting in front of the wardrobe and uh lewis's brother warney had suggested to lewis you know just go and talk to him about the fact that he just lost his mother and lewis said I don't know what to say to him, and Warner says, it, what, it, "Just talk to him. You know, just talk to him." In other words, it doesn't matter so much the content of what you have to say than the time with the person. His grief is the is the important thing. So Lewis goes up there, and it's a wonderful scene, of course, where the little boy is uh, is uh, puzzled as to why his mother had to endure this. Lewis himself uh, admits he doesn't know either. Uh, and then the little boy Douglas asks uh, Jack if he believes in heaven, and 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 Lewis says he does. And then the little boy says he doesn't. And then Lewis says, "That's okay. That's instructive, because obviously we don't we don't see clearest when our eyes are are, are filled with tears. And the boy's eyes were clearly filled with tears. He was mourning the loss of his mother, and uh, he didn't need a theological lesson at that moment. So Lewis just let that go. And then the boy started to cry, and he. He said, "I sure hope uh, I see her again." And Lewis says, "Me too." He starts to cry. Right? No answers, just cries with the boy, and they and they hug, they embrace, mm-hmm. and that is sort of the the biggest resolution, just about the biggest resolution that you're going to see of these questions mm-hmm. in this particular movie. I think I think there are, there are yet more resources in Lewis's actual life and in his writings and whatnot. But with respect to this movie, that's that's about as good as it gets. That. Mm-hmm. Uh, come alongside those who are suffering. Don't try to uh, pretend that you you know answers, that you don't. Cry with them. Mourn with those who mourn. And uh, save some of those theological questions that you might have for later. Well, that's interesting, too, right? Yeah, you know,
0: Lewis doesn't... Another thing to sort of say about how, how he deals with Douglas is that he doesn't scold him. You know, he, he's not only saying, you know, that's all right that you're struggling right now, but... I think there's there's a tendency sometimes for for people to want to, you know, correct people and put them on the right path, and you know what I mean. Um, yeah. and, um and and react very strongly to that that sort of pain, which really compounds it. Um, right. I, I wondered, you know, as I read and, and watched um, this film as well. I think to be able to, to say that God has a, a reason for allowing suffering that, that we maybe n- don't necessarily have access to, and so that deals with the logical problem of pain, I, I think I, I get that. That makes sense. Um, although I think Lewis, and, and maybe it's his tradition as, as a Westerner or whatever, but um, he doesn't you know, say that in a, in a more collective way. He, he individualizes it. Uh, it's almost like, I am in the dentist chair, and the suffering that I'm going through will ultimately turn out for my good. Is it possible that, that, you know, that approach to individualize it so much maybe is less helpful? You know, if, if you look to someone whose who's, who's child was just murdered and you say, oh, well, this was for your good. I mean, this kind of, you know, meticulous sovereignty that's sort of Calvinistic, but also very benevolent. Um, I mean, is, does that, first of all, is, is it something that's going to be satisfying to hear? And second of all, does it necessarily make sense?
1: I don't think it's satisfying to give people that kind of answer, that kind of theoretical answer, in the throes of their suffering. That's not the time to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that those really aren't the right times to ask those hard questions. Just let people let people grieve and so forth. You know, um, and and there's a big difference too between saying God is able to redeem uh, an excruciating trial in one's life and God specifically sent it in order to make you better, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's something fundamentally flawed about that, too. And by the way, Lewis has been criticized uh, along these lines uh, for some of what he has said in uh, A Grief Observed. Uh, when you when you personalize it too much, and you say, okay, uh, it, like he, he suggested, well, God had to take Joy away because I was idolizing her, or something like that. Mm-hmm. that that's kind of making it a little bit more about himself than he should. <laughs> so maybe he should have suggested... One of the benefits that I might be able to derive from this excruciating experience is to learn uh, that I shouldn't uh, idolize, you know, I should worship God alone and not allow my relationship with God to be dependent upon my getting what I want. But that's different from saying God did it specifically for this purpose to teach me that lesson. In general, I think that when people are suffering, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't come in all sorts of knowing acting like we know more than we do and, and and let us provide you all of these answers as to why you're suffering we don't know but what we do know is that God is faithful uh, through those times hmm. and that uh, he can uh, he can be relied upon he he can can uh, be drawn closer to God who will be with us through those difficult times and he uh, you know uh, he can be trusting the suffering but that's very different I think from this uh, presumption why this is happening there's a lot of mystery there that we simply uh, are unable to penetrate in our current epistemic limitations sure um, yeah that, that kind
0: of um, very you know meticulous sovereignty that God is doing this somehow for my individual good seems difficult I think to even imagine in
1: certain instances, mm-hmm. but, but I think, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and what about, well, yeah, well, what about, you know, suppose your, your child gets raped. Uh, are you, are, you know, if someone says, well, you know, <clears throat> that, I, that was a horrible experience for me to see that happen, but, but it made me better ultimately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the problems with that are just so obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but I, I think
0: there is at the same time, like you said, that um, this idea of, of, of getting through the other side of it, and, and how do we get through the other side of it? Do we get through the other side of it saying, that wasn't really an evil at all? That, you know, you know, we're just composed of atoms. And, you know, if, you know, if I, if I sit on a chair, or step on a floor, it's, it's just as much of a violation, which is to say, it's not at all. Um, <laughs> and, or, or do we say that, you know, this was an evil? that there is a good God who is is set on redeeming the evil some in some way, shape or form and you know to, to speculate on, on why He you know, allows this or that or the other thing is, is ultimately in most cases going to be fruitless.
1: Right. You know evil should be a problem, right? And Christianity has a, a great explanation for why that is the case. This is a fallen world in the process of being redeemed. And so, of all people, I don't think Christians should trivialize or, or, you know, deny this category of of evil things in this world. But um, our atheist friends have a different kind of problem of evil. It's not, obviously, the problem of reconciling the suffering in this world with God's existence because they don't believe that God exists. Merely to cash it out in terms of pain or something like that, you know, pain is very unpleasant, and that that sort of thing doesn't uh, doesn't penetrate to the depths of what's going on because there are such things as moral evils in this world, you know, more distinctively. Uh, moral categories and things like that. And you you have to have enough worldview resources to really make sense of, of these things, of the depth of the badness of evil in this world. And Christianity, I think, has those those resources. And I think our naturalist friends uh, really don't. So the way uh, Jerry Wallace likes to put it sometimes is that when the problem of evil for your worldview ceases to be a problem, that's a, an even bigger problem <laughs> for your worldview. And i, I I don't think he is open to that charge. I do think that a secular perspective really is, because I think ultimately the category of evil understood in moral terms does largely need uh, more adequate uh, backing and undergirding than what a secular worldview can provide. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think evil, I think we have to,
0: acknowledge the existence of evil i think first of all to i think have a um at least a good reason in this arena for, for believing in god which which i think maybe seems um um you know like a paradox for some people but the very existence of evil itself requires the existence of moral categories which which again requires the existence of god which 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 is i think another reason why you know this kind of you know meticulous sovereignty approach can, can be a dead end because it in a way makes evil something good. If if God has, is His hand is in everything and everything which happens is uh, meant for some for some greater goal, uh, is, is intended, is done for some greater goal, uh, then that almost makes it not evil. You know, it's it's actually just good in disguise. Um, but I think to be able to say that there is evil in the world um, mm-hmm. re- requires us to to say, okay, well. Yeah. There's evil, there's moral, moral categories, and there's actual good, and what
1: does that look like? And, and then the answer to that is God. Yeah, good. So, yeah, I think that's right. Evil really contrasts with good, right? Uh, you, you know, Immanuel Kant made this clear that there's a difference between uh, mere badness understood as, say, pain, and the category of evil, which is the more distinctively moral category, whose contrast is, is good. And and so your worldview needs an account of what is Ultimately morally good and I I think we really do have a very solid robust account of that as as Christians and as and as theists Uh, And I I do in fact of course uh, embrace something like a moral argument for God's existence In fact, I think the moral arguments for God's existence uh, And the problem of evil they kind of go head to head and one's going to win and one's going to lose They're sort of locked in a zero-sum game and I think the moral argument is going to win over this uh, problem of evil deal is as formidable a challenge as it might uh, initially seem to us. But in terms of uh, in terms of uh, this me- meticulous providence idea, yeah, I, want, I just want to uh, affirm what you're saying and, and, and uh, agree 100%. Yeah, I, th- I think that if you embrace the theology that says absolutely everything that happens is in precise accordance with, with God's will, uh, and even what might appear to be evil, in fact, is is actually kind of good because God brought it about. God's not the author of evil and all of this. I think this is confusing God's ability to redeem evil circumstances with, uh, with this, this notion that God, God brought them about again. And I think that we need to be very careful as, as Christians not to suggest in any way that God is the author of uh, evil. He can redeem it. But it's not his his will that these things would happen. It will; it's in his permissive plan, and he can redeem these things. But uh, it's never the case that God uh, sends uh, people to, you know, perform sins or anything or anything like that. I think that's just bad theology.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, What's kind of interesting too is you know, um, I I don't know if you had read um, the. What's the name of the book? Uh, well, it's actually called Joy, the, the, the recent biography that was written about Joy Davidman. Um, and I had the author's name out here, but I seem to have lost it. Um, it's, what's kind of interesting is, you know, the, the circumstances that sort of create their relationship, and you get this in the movie, too, to some extent, are not necessarily ideal. But there is something that's, that's sort of good and beautiful that comes out of it, and also unexpected. Um and, you know, I, I wonder if there, there's sort of an, al- an analogy there um, for, for how we think about, you know, um, the, the the less than ideal circumstances uh, in which we live in this world, which, you know, never, nevertheless, God is, you know, going to turn something good out of.
1: Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I like and, that. I, I know, and, you know, what, what's the response? it's not entirely clear but there's there's some speculation that you know uh, joy kind of had her aim on lewis even as she was married to this other guy that she was she was i think you know uh, wanting to uh, uh she, she had feelings for him she was attracted to him was was already sort of trying to scoop him up i think they try to suggest in the film that maybe that's not the case because when they're sort of maybe aware that there are feelings there she seems to not like it as at least like what she's you know implies um but, the, mm-hmm. but there's at least a little bit of speculation that that was maybe her intention from the beginning and, you know, sort of an unhappy marriage and, uh, you know, the guy who's an alcoholic and all the problems that were there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's a I, 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 I don't know. It, it is, I think, yeah. you know, a lot, some people have sort of cast negative, um, uh, you know, aspersions on, on Lewis because of the relationship in and of itself. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Bad about it or immoral.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting question how how closely the the, the movie actually was based on, on real life, you know. We we know they took some artistic liberties. And and I I don't know all the ins and outs of that relationship in in, in real life myself. I wouldn't be probably the best person to reflect on on that so much, but uh, I, I sort of just take the movie as is and kind of uh, assess it on its own uh, merits. But it is interesting to point out some of the discrepancies, right? Like in real life, there were two two sons, and not, in the movie, there was just one. And uh, and of course, I'm sure that, that not every detail of that relationship, as it was uh, fictionally depicted, corresponds with uh, with actual life. And then the, his friends that he was hanging out with there, and the bird and the baby, or wherever they were. I mean, you have this Christopher Riley character, who's a great character in the movie, but who doesn't really correspond with anyone in real life, as far as I know. And in fact, if anything, you might say, his real-life friends, the, the Inklings, you know, Tolkien, Barfield, and Williams, and the rest, uh, were probably far more interesting than, in general, his friends in, in the movie. They, they probably could have benefited from actually having his, uh, his real-life uh, friends uh, fictionally uh, represented. I do know, I, I, I heard that Tolkien was rather put off by this aspect of his real life, which the movie did capture, that he kind of kept it under his hat, that he had married Joy to extend his British citizenship to her, and uh, Tolkien wasn't really informed of this until later, and he was a bit put off by by that. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there was there was clearly something less than optimal in that in that relationship. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And C.S. Lewis was a human being, and he was capable of making some uh, mistakes. And I'm not necessarily saying the marriage was a mistake, but maybe some of the aspects of the way in which he, he dealt with it. Uh, clearly less than, than optimal, less than perfectly functional, but it w- would certainly seem like you suggested that God redeemed the the circumstances in a remarkable way and, and brought a great deal of good out of it.
0: Yeah. Well, the, the thing too, I think about some of those questions of, of, of real life correspondence, and I know that oftentimes people get a little pedantic um, in their expectation of, of biopics to be, you know, just like the uh, you know, the details in real life, but I did kept, I, I kept watching trying kind to of say, okay, is, is this supposed to be Tolkien or, um, and, and you know, some mm-hmm. of those, um, you know, was it was really, sh- and even like um, in, in the Inklings, wasn't, uh, wasn't Dorothy Sayers an inkling or was that really just a, more of a male group? I know she was kind of connected to them. Yeah, I don't think
1: she was officially counted as one, but she was friends with them.
0: Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was completely a gentleman's club or if there, if there, it was a little bit more diverse than that. But
1: I'm, I'm pretty much I'm pretty sure it was pretty much uh, all all males that were officially considered inklings. I could be wrong, but I gotcha. think so.
0: Yeah, but 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 you 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 weren't aware of anyone in the
1: film that was that was uh, in that sort of group that was really no. supposed to be someone in real life. No, in fact, I think I had heard that it, it, it's not the case that that that's just not something that they tried tried to do at all. And, uh, and again, by excluding guys like uh, uh, to- Tolkien and the rest, I mean, that was a colorful bunch. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, there could have been interesting side stories involving involving them. But, uh, but, and, but in real life, I mean, th- those were, were really his closest friends with whom he fraternized on a regular basis, and they, they very much shaped him and he them. And, uh, yeah, to leave that out of the story, that, it's perfectly fine. They can take artistic liberties in that direction if they wish and focus up, you know, elsewhere. Uh, but, but, but to leave it out certainly did leave out a lot of interesting possibilities. Do you think it's possible
0: that they thought that if they had fleshed it out too much, it would have been uh, – maybe they wanted those relationships to be in relief, which is why they, they sort of treated them as sort of secondary and not very fleshed out?
1: Yeah, my, my guess is that's probably right.
0: Well, and I think in particular, I think Joy is treated as bringing this sort of, you know, new color to his life. And like, it's almost like they're trying to sort of say that prior to Joy, you know, his
1: life was kind of two dimensional and she sort of makes it three dimensional. Um, I think that's I think I think that's right. I think that's the way they're they're depicting it. And again, I think that's a perfectly legitimate place for people to wonder uh, about how closely to real life that corresponds, because I suspect that that's. if if even if it's true, uh, uh, only a, a small part of a much bigger picture. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that. Um,
0: w- what did you think of the film altogether, apart from its sort of philosophical themes? You know, uh, its treatment of characters and the way it's filmed, and just kind of all those yeah. details. Yeah. yeah,
1: I just I just think Attenborough did a, a marvelous job uh, directing. I, I think the the writing was really uh, crisp. I rewatched it last night with my. Wife uh, for probably the twentieth time, and was struck again by how how beautiful some of the dialogue is and how, how good some of the acting is, uh, and I and I love the the setting at Oxford and all that's represented there in terms of the intellectual life. Um, someone once said that Oxford is is an, an embodiment of the nobility of the intellectual tradition, and I've always liked that. And uh, it's a it's it's a wonderful. Uh, Place to to make a movie, and they really uh, captivated the audience with all the shots that they took, all the all the beautiful music, uh, the great dialogue, the the impeccable acting, and so the the whole uh, cumulative effect of the movie is is always uh, very touching for me personally.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's um, what's kind of interesting about the film is it's not you know a quick moving film or anything. It's it's a bit of a slow burn. You sort of. Are following the characters. What you're interested in is how they interact with each other, um, how they relate. I think Anthony Hopkins plays the role with kind of a, um, I don't know, there, there's sort of a quiet dignity about it. I guess you sort of feel like there's there's always something going on underneath. But 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 he you know he plays the characters you know kind of reserved in a way, but, but with something else underneath. Um, which is which is I think you know difficult to do. How, how do you how do you convey all of all of what's going on inside someone? you know, without sort of exaggerating it externally. Um, sure. What you're interested in is I think always what's kind of beneath the surface because the film itself is, is I think a pretty slow moving, slow moving film, but you're, you're just so interested in, and in how the characters are relating to each other and, and, and that kind of stuff. What's kind of going on beneath sure. the surface.
1: Yeah. And, and Hopkins, I mean, for them to score him to play Lewis, uh, I mean, that's a coup, uh, you know, great actor. Um, Max McLean, he, he does that one man. Uh, C.S. Lewis show up in up in New York. We saw him uh, last summer at, at Oxford, a C.S. Lewis conference over there in, at Oxford and Cambridge, and he said of of uh, Hopkins playing that role that Hopkins was playing. Playing Hopkins, <laughs> but but then he made it very clear that he wasn't he wasn't criticizing uh, that uh, he, that he thinks Hopkins is is a great actor and so forth. But uh, maybe he wasn't capturing uh, Lewis so much as he was uh, captured capturing himself in certain respects. But it was still very well done for what it, for what it was. Of course, the BBC also put out a version of Shadowlands, and and this was a, was a play. So this can take different. Forms and incarnations depending on who gets cast in the various roles and such uh, But but the story itself really is so so compelling and and I'm glad that it's been told in more than one way and you know with more than one person playing uh, Lewis it's it's really a, a, a Story that's worth telling and worth uh, worth pondering
0: Yeah, absolutely there, there, there's kind of a, a a side plot like a B plot in the film Uh, which is Lewis's relationship with a student who's, uh, you know, seems kind of uninterested and in the Oxford life a little bit. Um, And I, I, I kept trying to figure out exactly what that was, what that was there for, what that was supposed to convey. And, you know, Lewis takes on a somewhat paternal relationship with the character. I didn't know if it was maybe, you know, kind of foreshadowing that, you know, he had this sort of paternal interest that would sort of, you know, be useful later with Douglas or uh, I was trying to kind of just make a connection with what exactly that was that was mm-hmm. supposed to be.
1: Uh, how did you sort of see yeah. that? Why that was yeah, there? For? I, your suggestion is an interesting one. I had never thought of that. I, I had I had always thought of it in terms of this: that Whistler sort of recognized that Lewis was so comfortable in his role as teacher mm-hmm. that usually when he would ask a question, he kind of already knew the answer. And, uh, and so uh, Whistler said, look, uh, I just don't, I don't see things as clearly as, as you do. And he kind of kind of wanted to work uh, things out on his own. And so at one point when Lewis felt exasperated with him and said, you know, I, I don't know what, what people uh, are wanting from me or, or something like that. Whistler said, you know, that's the first time you've asked a question where I, I don't feel like you already have the answer to it. Mm-hmm. And you'll recall the, the parallel here with uh, Joy when they were going to the hotel. And uh, he said, are you happy? And she said, yeah. And he says, what well, kind of happy? And then uh, she says, oh, yeah, I forget. When you ask a question, it's because you already have a particular answer in mind. you know. And then that becomes a kind of a cute, funny, winsome scene between those two. But the point is that, uh, again, as fictionally depicted, Lewis is, is uh, uh, sort of pictured here as a guy who's got to figure it figured out and it, and it was maybe good for him to get knocked off course a little bit to 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 realize that he didn't have all of the answers that everything wasn't quite as 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 neat and tidy as he had thought again i'm not suggesting that the real life lewis was was actually in like that but but that's definitely the angle that they were yeah. going for in the movie and so i think that at least is part of what what they meant to flesh out with whistler the student yeah it seems that maybe when you read a grief observed that that Lewis maybe
0: feels that way a little bit about himself that maybe he had been knocked off his uh you know his his sort of confidence about you know what he thought he knew and understood a little bit um oh yeah yeah yeah.
1: um
0: that's interesting that that makes sense that there's kind of these these sort of um you know characters who are um uh I guess in a way sort of perceived as having it a little less together. Uh, You know, Joy's a bit brash. The the kid's kind Mm -hmm. of a a bad student, Uh, (laughs) a little bit arrogant, maybe. Um, Yeah. But at the same time, I guess maybe they're, they're trying to suggest that, you know, Lewis is portraying a kind of uh, confidence, almost maybe an arrogance that, uh, you know, that that, that's, that's unhelpful that maybe he's, he's, I don't know. Yeah. That's that's interesting.
1: No, I like that a lot, you know, with the the student Whistler. Yeah. Kind of a bad student. Right. But, There's another sense in which, you know, he had this passion for reading books and he wanted to read them all night. And remember, his hands would tremble when he would open a new book. Does the author feel what I feel and see what I see and so forth? Well, so he leaves. He doesn't finish his degree. Uh, Lewis is very disappointed at all of that. But he, he goes on. And when we see him later on the train, he has become a teacher himself and Unless he's, uh, unless he's just wrong, uh, says, yeah, actually, I think I'm pretty good at it. And, and Lewis says, I suspect you're something of a born teacher. And so maybe even some of the conflicts that Lewis had uh, with, with the guy uh, was was exactly because this guy, by wanting to chart his own course and figure things out for himself and, and really think issues through and come to his own conclusions, it, maybe it didn't make him the best student. May, maybe it led to some conflicts but it also may have contributed to him being such an excellent quality teacher himself later down the line. Right. So, so there's all of that at play. Yeah. 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 That, that,
0: that's kind of, a, that's an
1: interesting relationship in, in the film. Um, hey, can I say another word about a grief observed code? Yeah, go ahead. Because you, Yeah. Cause you had mentioned that and, and it really is remarkable. If listeners have not read, juxtaposed Lewis's problem of pain and a grief observed, they really should, because it is, it is really fascinating to see this guy first struggle with the problem of evil and intellectually, and then in his personal journal, and that's what A Grief Observed originally was, was just his personal journal, really struggle with evil in that personal way. And it's and it's it's a it's a whole different ballgame. And, and I think that readers would be amazed to see that the same guy who wrote mere Christianity and who constructed the moral argument and who wrote a problem of pain and talked about how God uh, whispers us, uh, to us in our conscience but, but, you know, shouts to us in our pain, also wrote a grief observed where he says, among other things, things like, you know, what good reason do I have other than my desperate wish to believe it, that God is actually Good when all of the evidence points to the contrary. I mean, the same guy wrote this stuff, uh, and, and like you were mentioning earlier, you know, in a grief observed, he he does come to something more of a of an emotional resolution with some of those struggles. And in fact, even if you look at it carefully, you realize it was the very next day that he turned his back on some of those ideas that were going mm-hmm. through his head. by articulating them, he gave it. He made us privy. He kind of gave us a, a, an insight into what was going. Th- on in his mind in the throes of grief and in so doing he really uh, did us a great service because we can see in all of the particularities of of his very intense emotional struggle with evil things that we recognize within ourselves right there's something very universal about uh, the particularities involved here and we can see that look if even someone like C.S. Lewis, who'd written one of the premier seminal works on The Problem of Evil, could so struggle, you know, with a, a personal uh, challenge with with suffering, then it's okay when we struggle, too. And uh, we can trust that God will be with us through it all.
0: That's good. You know, I, kind of a related question um, is whether or not there's a, a, moral component to that struggle. Um, you know, I think all, all of us know people who have, you know, maybe had bad experiences in the church or went through, you know, a time of severe grief and, and and not, they don't always come out at the other end, uh, you know, still having faith. Um, you know, I, I, have, I have friends that I can say that of, um, uh, a kind of popular in and sort of, sort of the popular, uh, Christian world I guess a little bit. Uh, The the musicians that were married, Sandra McCracken and Derek Webb, and uh, the the husband was unfaithful, they ended up divorced. Uh, He came through it, uh, an atheist, and she came through it still, you know, believing in in, in God. Um, And so you kind of look at these experiences that we have and, you know, I think we Christians do tend to say that there there is a moral component to belief or unbelief. do you think that that how does that sort of factor in when you're dealing with issues like like suffering and pain
1: yeah well yeah this is a good and challenging question right because someone might might mistake say um, a theoretical uh, challenge to faith with something that is more psychological, existential, or perhaps even uh moral right. I have a friend who um, tells uh, the story of um, a friend of his that he had at seminary who came back after one summer, uh, all very skeptical, you know, about his faith and, and whatnot. Uh, but lo and behold, come to find out, the person had begun to live with his girlfriend unmarried over the summer, and that moral choice actually kind of began at least, so thought my friend, skewing this guy's perspective, yep. which it can. So, so uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes we can use excuses like, "Well, I've got these intellectual doubts," or, or whatever. Or look at the suffering that I've endured in order to gravitate to, to a view that you might, down deep, really want to hold because it's going to liberate you, for, say, from some of those moral constraints or strictures that Christianity would impose. I don't want to, in any particular instance, uh, insist that this is the case and that I know it's the case, <clears throat> but there's good reason to think that at least sometimes this, this dynamic is operative. And I think that it's good for us to be aware of that so that we can be self-aware enough and honest enough with ourselves so that when those struggles come, we don't wrap with you know these legitimate in- intellectual garbs something that at root is is something much more visceral, something much more emotional. Uh, or perhaps even, uh, something like, uh, a, a moral, um, a, a failure. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I think
0: sometimes we, in particular, we will turn personal guilt into, uh, an objection to God. And then we sort of look to rationalize it with, uh, yeah. arguments, you know, yeah. And, and I've seen that too. I, I, yeah, I had a friend who went through a, a bad experience of the breakup with a, a girl and, um, Uh, his, uh, you know, not long after that, he told me, well, I still believe in God because I don't have any reason not to. But I I think of myself as a Christian hedonist now because I'm just not really interested in following that path. And then, you know, before long, he's picking up Dawkins and and everything else, all the stuff he knew about before. It's not as if there were new arguments, but suddenly the Mm -hmm. argument seemed more satisfactory because there was
1: an emotional uh, sure for them, too. Yeah, I mean, and th- this this is uh, this is something of which we all need to be aware. Of. We're not just logic chopping machines, you know. We are volitional creatures, relational creatures, emotional creatures, spiritual creatures, and uh, there are, can be all sorts of um, contributors to uh, the beliefs that we form and, and hold and cherish. And uh, we always like to think of ourselves. As making purely rational, dispassionate, logical decisions, right? Uh, but in point of fact, that that's that's relatively rarely the case. It's much more complicated than that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, so if if
0: if God can be patient and understanding when we're in the throes of pain and we're and we're sort of dealing with, um, you know, these 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 you know, the issues of theodicy and and all that other stuff, um, is, is it is it possible also that that God is um, Patient and understanding, and even forgiving, if uh, we don't always come out
1: of the other side of it, um, in, in in faith. Or what what are your thoughts on that? Oh yeah. Well, look, I think that God loves everybody. I think uh, it's not His desire that any should perish, and I think He does everything short of overriding our freedom to draw us to Himself. I think that uh, intellectual do- doubts are are fine, and if people are experiencing those, doesn't mean that God loves them any less. I don't think God's up in heaven fretting that people aren't believing in him or something like that. I mean, um, the devils believe in God. Uh, he wants a whole lot more than merely our uh, intellectual ascent. He wants a relationship with us. And uh, so, yeah, I think he he remains uh, absolutely uh, patient uh, with, with with all of us, despite our rebellion, despite our sin, despite our disbelief, our lack of faith and, and all the rest. Um but until until we make a definitive uh, choice uh, against him, I, I think there is hope, and I, I think God is uh, ready and, and happy and, and willing to take any small little uh, element of uh, element of openness to Him and fan it into a, a greater and greater flame. Uh, I don't think He's just looking for an excuse to, um, you know, uh, relegate us to perdition. I think He He genuinely uh, loves us. And, you know, nowadays it's a bad rap when you start talking about God's love because you get accused of domesticating the concept or watering it down. You know, yeah, but God's also God of wrath and, and justice and holiness, and he is. Uh, but none of those things are independent of his love. And I think that uh, all of us need to really come to terms with this fundamental fact that this is who God is. God is a God of essential love. It's not just what he does, it's it's who he is. And uh, before we were ever around, and before there was ever a world over which he could be sovereign, uh, he was essentially love. He is essentially love. And uh, so God loves you. God likes you. God wants a relationship with you. And uh, he he doesn't delight in sending anyone to hell. It wasn't his desire originally that any human being would go to hell. It wasn't originally meant for us. It was meant for uh, Satan and his minions and the like. Uh, if anybody ends up in hell, it's an utter tragedy. And it will only be because God's overtures of love were consistently uh, resisted to the bitter end. And uh, and that is a, a tragedy indeed. Hmm. Well, that that's a i could could be a good place to close but but if you have any
0: uh do you have any other thoughts about the film or any of the issues that came come up with it
1: oh just one little, one little neat image in the film that i thought was cool and this has to do with this, this idea that he kind of opened up more you know than he was originally uh, you might even miss this uh, uh this little detail but at the beginning of the film do you remember when he's in his classroom and it's kind of like he's in his element and He's got these prepackaged answers and so forth and so on, and Whistler's not at all happy about it. But uh, the, the little detail that I would point out is how Lewis closed his window. Mm-hmm. You might not have noticed this. He closed his window, and then he taught his class. And at the very end, he goes and he meets with the uh, the student that he's going to tutor, and uh, they go up in the office, and they start talking, and he asks the, the kid some open-ended questions. And, and it wasn't like Lewis knew what the answers were, were, he, he really was curious to hear what the kid had to say, you know, and the kid ventured some answers, and then Lewis said, go on, you know, and then he walked over to the window, and he opened it up, and and that was just a, a neat visual depiction uh, of some of what they were going for in, in, this, in this movie, that as time went on, uh, he really seemed to open up more, uh, acknowledge some of his own limitations and, and develop more of an interest in in, in hearing what others had to say. Um, just kind of a cool, cool uh, thing that a movie can do. That's good, and I actually missed that. Well,
0: actually funny is uh, that scene in, in the end. He when he goes to the window and opens it up and he says, "I'm listening." I remember yeah. thinking, I remember actually thinking sort of the opposite, which was, you know, well, he says he's listening, but he's going over the window and looking outside. It Doesn't seem like he's very interested. But but I think I think you're right that if I would have paid attention to how that was bookended, I would have thought, oh yes, he actually is open. He's opening himself up to the world, and he's you know yeah. So uh, these sort of outside things Um, that yeah that's I think that's probably right. I think you're right. I think that's great. Um, Wow. Okay. So uh, Dr. Baggett, you also so your most recent book actually just came out this month. I think is the Mm -hmm. morals of the story. Good news about a good God. Yes.
1: And
0: and and that's related to these issues
1: of moral apologetics as well, right? That's right. It's a distillation of a couple books that Jerry Walls and I did, uh, Good God and God and Cosmos, and my wife and I did this particular Book with uh, IVP Academic, and uh, we try to make the, uh, the, the our fourfold moral argument more accessible to a wider readership. And it's also got a, a little bit of the rich history of uh, the moral argument in there as well. So, yeah, we're happy with uh, how it came out, and it's been received pretty well so far. And uh, lo- looking forward to more people taking a look. That's great, and and, and to, for for those who may be some, somewhat unaware that the moral argument
0: has to do with the idea that. Um, um, Goodness and, and even evil actually are pointers to God because they, because if they are real, then they have to be founded in something
1: Yeah, uh, we we identify a range of moral phenomena in need of explanation and We argue that uh, theism generally and Christianity in particular provides impeccable Resources to explain these things and explain them very well from good to evil to moral agency to moral transformation and uh, and, and there are others beyond those too that's
0: good. And, and, and I'll just throw this out here just kind of as a question. Um, I know it's not as um, traditional an argument, but um, I wonder what you think about the idea that um, the incarnation itself is, is something of a, a, a defeater for the problem of evil. That um, the evil and pain that we experienced was taken on personally by God so that um, on an existential level, the idea of, you know, God
1: is sort of this distant, you know, cosmic vivisectionist is, is sort of undone. By that? Oh yeah, I think that has tremendous potential, uh, both at the theoretical level and and the practical existential level. You know, when you're going through something and, and you and you realize uh, that you don't have the answers and it, it's almost too much to bear, just to remember that God Himself uh, was willing to endure sufferings for us that uh, m- make our sufferings pale by comparison, and that there's a, a glory to come. Uh, as a result of what he was willing to do that will make the sufferings of this uh, world uh, small by comparison. Uh, that's something really to hold on to in the, in the darkest of, of moments. So yeah, I think that that speaks powerfully indeed to both the theoretical and the practical problem of evil.
0: Excellent. Thanks. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for being willing to, to do this with me, Dr. Baggett. And it was uh, great talking to you. And a great film, uh, choice in a film as well, because this had been my list to watch, but I hadn't, hadn't watched it yet. Oh, terrific. Well, it was a
1: joy speaking with you, Cody. Hopefully we can do it again.